Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. All right. Welcome back. I'm not going to, until everyone's out of lobby, we were not starting the time. So I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding, kind of. It's actually, I, I was looking at my calendar today, and it has been 18 weeks since I've preached at Redemption Hill or anywhere. And um, when I told Matt that, he was pretty concerned about me trying to put more into this sermon because there's more <laughs> stored up. But don't worry, I'm, I'm going to pace myself. This will be hopefully nice and short for you all. We're finishing up our series, Beloved, which is, we've been walking through the book of First John, and I don't know, has, have you guys enjoyed this series? Has it been encouraging? There's a lot of themes that repeat themselves, and so hopefully, hopefully you've felt that. What, what are some of the things that have come up over the summer as, as you've been reading through First John that God keeps, keeps touching on? Some of the themes. Yeah, you can always hear my dad's voice just like directly through the back. It's just constant. Any, any, any themes that you guys been bringing up this summer that just keep hitting you over and over again? This is collaborative. We're all in this together. Everyone's like, I haven't been here. That's on you, I guess. There's a podcast if you really need to catch up. abiding, remaining in Jesus with him. Yeah, that's a major theme is that our belovedness is tied to our connection with Jesus brings us into a beloved relationship with the Father. Absolutely. What are the themes and things that have come up over the summer? Bob? Yeah. You have to imagine this this book was probably written between 90 and 180 AD. John was probably somewhere in his teenage years in 34, 30 when Jesus died. And so you're talking about let's say he was born in 15 and this was in 90. So he's 75 years old in the first century, which means John cannot see. It's almost guaranteed that John was blind at 75 in the first century. And so, so I, I want you to imagine like a, a scribe sitting with John and, and actually like just receiving this and like trying to, trying to write it and then reading it back to him and revising. Has anybody ever tried doing that with anyone? Can you imagine sitting with like an elderly grandparent and trying to write down their memo, like write down their, their memories? It'd be, it'd be tough. But this is, honestly, when you read John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it's like this late gift to the church the latest thing that we have written from the apostles. And John, I think, felt a lot of fear 
because what he was seeing was that there was all this division in the church at the late first century and all these new ideas from people who didn't know Jesus, who hadn't seen what he had done and hadn't lived among the disciples and the apostles. And John was like, I got to make sure these guys don't miss it. And the thing that John focuses on, if you could take all of John's writing and boil it down to one word, what's that word? Love or beloved. Like that is the word and the language that John wanted everybody to know about Jesus before he died. Um, I'm just going to walk through a, a quick recap of the book of First John just to kind of set our stage. So John starts with, I really saw Jesus. Like that's the first, the first passage from chapter one is, I really saw Jesus. I was with him. I know him. He's establishing authority, but also reminding his people, reminding the church that Jesus wasn't an idea and he wasn't just a man, but he was God himself who had come and that light and life come from Jesus. Don't miss out that Jesus is the one who brings and sustains all life and that only through him do we receive not just created life, but the life everlasting, the belonging to the Father, the being connected with the Father forever. Sin was a huge problem. Then, just as it is now, stop me if this sounds familiar. Um, in the first century, they were struggling with, like, especially across the Greek world, like idol worship was everywhere. On every corner that you turned, it was a huge part of the economy of the first century was idol worship that was built to sustain an industrial religious complex that was happening. And so everywhere you looked, in every city, if you didn't participate in idol worship, you didn't belong in the city. And so every person had to make a choice. Were they going to be a kind of person who worshiped God and didn't participate in the economic vitality of the city? Or were they going to be a person who chose to... Uh, really compromise and walk in the ways of the world. What we see here is enormous pride where there's a group of believers that John is writing to who believe that they are without sin. Now, I know some of you guys are proud and arrogant like me and believe that you have little sin, but these guys believed they had no sin at all. They believed that they had been so sanctified by the coming of Jesus that there was nothing bad in them and that they couldn't be questioned. Incredible pride. There was sexual deviance. There was family problems. Um, John, John says, don't sin. For the love of all that's holy, please quit sinning. But if you do, here's the deal. Jesus himself covers your sin. Jesus himself will give you forgiveness. And sin cannot keep you from God when you turn to Christ. You can be sure that you're forgiven by the way, here's, here's the thing, your, your certainty about your place in God's family doesn't come from theological stances. It comes from your life. When your life is growing in the grace and knowledge of God, when your life has the fruit of the Spirit in it, that is how you know that you belong to him. It's not how you get salvation, but it's a sign and a symbol that you belong to his people, that you are growing in grace and knowledge of God. And then he says, follow Jesus in all things. And then he says, here's this commandment, basically the only commandment, and it's a really old commandment, and he's, he's just really taking them back all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and what we call the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. John is taking them all the way back to the very beginning and saying, remember what we do. Remember who we are. Remember who we serve. We love God and we love others. And that hate itself is darkness. When we hate, when we participate in seeing others as, and, as subhuman, when we treat others with disdain and disrespect, when we treat others as the enemy of God, when we hate them and pursue people's destruction, that itself is the darkness of evil. And so, John says, don't love this world. Don't pursue the physical pleasures of this world. Don't pursue stuff. Don't take pride in your achievements and the things that you have. Because, uh, I made Kyle preach on this part. He says, don't walk away from the way of Jesus. Don't pursue the things of this world. Because those who walk away are themselves antichrists. That's the word that John uses here. And he says that whoever denies God and denies Christ, denies that Jesus is the Messiah and that he came in bodily form and that he was resurrected, those that deny Jesus themselves have walked away and, and denied the grace of God in their lives. We've, Kyle talked a lot about this, but we've all imagined some great antichrist that's going to come and, and draw us all away from the faith in the, in the last days. Some of you grew up in some, some crazy wild 90s Christian times. <laughs> and um, and there, is, there is this picture of those who will be against Christ at the end times that will draw some away. But what we see here is that those people who have denied Christ, they're not the enemy. They're the battleground between God and darkness. We are the battleground. We are the prize that's being fought over between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And so God is saying, don't miss out on the blessings of belonging to me by denying and walking away and, and pressing God away from you. Because God himself is drawing near to you. God himself is, is doing whatever it will take to bring you into his presence. God himself is inviting you to be transformed in the way of the kingdom. But when we push him away, we miss out. And we have to remember that our faithfulness is our faith. That you'll know that you belong to God because you persevere in your faith and that you overcome evil and that you're, you're committed to the way of the kingdom. Now, this is, this is really hard to hold on to, and there's a lot of really complex spiritual things we're going to talk about here in a minute, but I, I just want to keep, keep touching on. Here's what John has been going through out the whole way. And he's, he says, and I'm, I'm going to read from John 3 here in a second. He says, you'll be glad rather than ashamed when you see the face of Christ because you have followed him to the end. John chapter 3, verse 20, he says this. Even if we feel guilty because of our sin, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. So, dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence, and we'll receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. So the work that we have to do is to receive the forgiveness from the Father that he offers through the death of Jesus in our place, 
and then boldly come before God and ask him to come through for us, confidently stepping in because we haven't shrunken away. Now, in the first century, they had experienced lots of turmoil. They had experienced um, significant persecution. They had been pushed out of towns and cities. And many had said, you know what? And I, I, I'm, not, I'm not taking myself out of this camp. Somebody comes and says, either you deny Christ and deny his lordship and take up these other gods as your savior, or you're going to be pushed from our city. You're not going to be able to belong to this people, and you're going to lose your connections with your family and your friends and your economic vitality. I'm wondering how many, how many of us would be committed to Christ. I want, you, I want you to take a second, just take stock. Like, if there was some real physical, financial, real cost to you to follow Jesus, would you keep doing it? Because, honestly, following Jesus in America costs you almost nothing. Like, it is, it, it may cost you a little bit of discomfort and maybe some arguments at Thanksgiving dinner, but it costs you almost nothing to follow Jesus. And in the first century, it cost them something, and so regularly people were turning away from Christ because of the difficulties of following Jesus in the first century. And the first century church had to figure out, what do we do with these people? When persecution comes, it rears his ugly head in the community, and they walk away, what are we going to do with them? Are we going to invite them back when the persecution subsides? Does somebody really belong to your community if when the chips are down, they say, adios? And then when they repent and want to come back, do do you trust them again? I, I imagine it's a lot like in the 1930s and 40s in, in, the, in Eastern Europe. And many of those who said, yeah, I'll follow Christ to the end. And then, you know, an SS officer shows up and you're like, well, the Jews are downstairs. You know, like how many people couldn't handle the cost of doing what was right in the face of what is lost? So today we're going to be diving in. At the end of the book, um, into John, First John chapter five, verse thirteen, and I think we have it on the slides. Hopefully, yeah, we do. It doesn't show up back there. All right, here we go. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And we are confident that He hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases Him. And since we know that He hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying that you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. We know that we are children of God, and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and he is eternal life. Dear children, this is John's last words here. Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. 
man, you don't feel some conflict reading that. Does, does that subvert any of your, like, understanding of forgiveness and of sin? Anybody? Anybody feels, raise, raise your hand if you feel any sort of just anxiousness or, like, things are hard in this passage. Just, you know, give me a little. Yeah. If, if, you, if you're reading it, there's some hard things here. Number one, John's writing this so that people would feel confident in their faith. And I'm betting a lot of you are like really wondering about your faith at this moment right now because he's asking you to take stock of where you're at. But he's writing this so that you'll know if you belong or you don't belong. He wants it to be clear for everybody. Mostly because if you look at the ancient world, the power of the idols and the power of the gods and principalities of this age are that they're fickle. All, all the demons who pretend to be gods are very fickle. And what happens when you have a fickle god is the priest can demand anything of you and ratchet it up over time. What, what they would do in, in the ancient world is, like we saw this on, at Mount Carmel with, with Elijah. What happens with, the, with the, all of these 400 um, prophets of Baal? They start with crying out to Baal. And they're crying out, and they're offering some sacrifices. And then, and then Elijah goes to Mon and says, they must, they must be asleep. You're going to have to wake them up. You've got you to yell a little louder. And so they start banging pots and pans and blowing trumpets and screaming up to the, to the gods of Baal and saying, would, would you, the, the God who made, who made all things, come down and bring fire on this, on this offering? That doesn't work. So what happens? Elijah says, oh, they, you're really going to have to try hard because maybe, they, maybe they've gone off to a faraway land. And so what do they do? They start bringing more and more offerings. They grab every animal they can, and they start slicing his throat and throwing the blood on the altar because they, they think that life and death is, is the stakes here. If we, want, if we want this rain to come so that our land will be saved, we're going to have to make an ultimate kind of sacrifice. So they start taking probably the emaciated animals that they had been saving probably all of their, their worldly possessions and just start throwing them into this, um, this altar, saying, Baal, come down, come down. And then what happens? It doesn't work. And so the prophets go, we're going to have to up the ante. So what do they do? They start cutting themselves. They just start slashing and bleeding. And if this, if this had been in a, uh, in a temple rather than on a mountain, what they would have done next is they would have started to kill children. That was what the Canaanite gods demanded as the ultimate sacrifice to overcome the world. What they would take, there was temple prostitutes and they would have sex with the temple prostitutes and pay a tax to have sex with the temple prostitutes. And then they would take the, pro, the production of those liaisons with the temple prostitutes, those babies that didn't have fathers and didn't have families, and they would use them as child sacrifices to appease the gods. This was the ratcheting up of the ancient world, all of these gods who said, we won't be satisfied until you give us everything. John wants us to know that Yahweh is not like those other gods. He wants to remind them that the sort of sacrifice he requires is his own sacrifice and that our work to belong to him is not to offer more and more blood and death and goods, 
but to rather submit ourselves humbly to the God of all creation and say, the one who has paid the price deserves my loyalty and I will bow to him and him alone. And so John is giving this so that they can be confident, so that they can, because what would happen is they would hedge their bets, right? They'd go join their church community on Sunday and they'd worship together and then they would they'd be walking past an idol and they go, well, I'm just going to hedge my bets. Let's put $5 down on, <laughs> on Aphrodite. Let's put $5 down over here at the, the temple to Zeus. And let's just make sure that if, if I need something, I've got the real God and I've also got maybe these other things that I could trust. John's saying, don't, don't put your trust in those things. You can trust God and you can bring your, your request to him. Now, What's the kind of request that, that John is saying that we should offer to God? What, what should we ask of him? This is weird and really specific. What are we called to pray for? If you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give that person life. What are we to pray for? You can say it out loud each other, but what are we praying for each other in this, in this particular instance? The forgiveness of sin. Did you guys know that in some crazy weird way, God has made you and I the ones who open and close the floodgates to God's forgiveness in the world? We are the ones who ask God to come and bring forgiveness. Now, this isn't an ultimate kind of forgiveness, but this is the everyday kind of forgiveness that God unleashes on us as we sin in our redeemed state. Once we've received Jesus and we continue on our sin because we live in flesh, we will continue to sin. And hopefully it gets to be less. But what we need is forgiveness. We need to be restored. We need to experience God's restoration in our life. And what, what Jesus tells his disciples is, is this little phrase that we don't talk about enough where Jesus tells his disciples, whatever you bind on earth will be bind in, bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And what Jesus is telling his disciples is that they are the ones who are going to withhold and release the kingdom of God in this world through their prayers. Now, this is crazy stuff, right? Like, this is not how we normally talk. When we hear about someone else's sin, what we pray is that they'll stop sinning, right? Your knucklehead friend tells you about what they're doing in their life, and you're like, gosh, I'm going to pray that you stop being such an idiot, and let's pray right now. And you, you know, try to knock the idiot out of your friend, and you're like, okay, please stop. But what we're supposed to do is receive confession from one another of our sin, and then unleash God's forgiveness on one another. We're supposed to pray to the Lord in heaven and say, will you forgive? We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. And this, this is a, a clear sign that like, we are protected from the evil one's wiles, even in the midst of this world, because we belong to God. We know that we're children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. 
and we know that the Son of God has come, and he's given us understanding so that we can know the true God. But there is a sin that leads to death. Now, what is this sin that leads to death? You guys feel any tension over that? Hopefully you do. There's a, there's a very common sin that leads to death. It's an everyday kind of sin that we participate in all the time. And if it rules over us, it will be the thing that keeps us away from God. John is speaking to a particular people. He's not speaking to everybody. And in the first century, what does John say in the first chapter to give us a hint of who he's talking to? You guys remember? Brethren, is that what he said? Yeah, they, these are, yeah, beloved children. Uh, but he says, and people who think they're done sitting. Now, this was, this was a heresy from the first century. Um, there's, got, there's like three groups that all like f- would fit into like the later Gnostic categories of people who have rejected the flesh and only live in the spirit so that they are without sin. Okay? So John is speaking directly to that group, and this was a group that had schismed, had, had torn asunder the church into these fighting categories. And they had, been, they had been fighting over theology and particularly about this issue. But what is the real issue if somebody tells you they don't have sin? They don't need God? And can you be in community with someone who is perfect? Who thinks they're perfect? <laughs> the answer is no. Why? Because if they are without sin, you cannot challenge them to change. This is the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is it's encapsulated in rebellion, but it is pride itself. It is me saying that I am the Lord of my life, and I will determine what is true and what is untrue. I will be the arbiter of what is real and what is unreal in the world. I will be the one and the only one who interprets God's word. And if you don't agree with me, you don't belong. And I will be the only one who determines what is right and wrong and how I live my life. And so you will, I'm going to do me, you do you, you stay in your lane, I'll stay in my lane. There is no space for us to challenge one another. Because what happens when pride takes over our lives and we cannot be wrong and we cannot have sin is that we no longer look to God as our ultimate authority. We look to ourselves. And I think that, like, you look at the first century and it feels so far removed that any of us would say that we're without sin. But we live in a world that says you don't have sin. And a lot of us live as if we have no sin. When we say that you don't have any space to challenge me, you don't have any space to question me, you don't have any space to speak to me about my life, what we're saying is that I am the ultimate God in my life. We say that instead of sin, we have trauma, that we're victims, that we're part of a protected class, that we're marginalized. And no one can question you when you're part of a protected class because that itself saves you from being questioned. 
19 centuries later, we're still living the same lie. When we're in an argument and we justify our actions so that the other person is someone that I can remove from my life, I'm right, they're wrong, therefore I can keep them at bay. When we use boundaries to shut out our family from our lives rather than consider our part in the dysfunction of our relationships. When we look at our work and we think of our boss or our neighbor as an enemy so I can treat them like a convenient scapegoat for my pain. We are saying, I don't have any sin. And I don't have any part in the brokenness that follows me everywhere I go. Our assumption must be, I have sin. I am far from God in my flesh, and I must repent. This is the only way to God, is to live in the reality that we are broken, and we live in a broken world, and that we need God to enter in, and that he wants to give us forgiveness and formation and healing and transform us in the kingdom way. We must be people who admit and realize our sin. Now, you know, I feel like I've got to give the, like, the small writing, like the caveats of, listen, some of you are victims and some of you have experienced abuse and violence and sexual assault and you've been in positions of weakness and that's not about sin. Like those things are separate from your sin. Those things are true. Some of you have experienced incredible injustice and pain in our world, but that doesn't mean that you yourself are without sin. It's a both and. What Miroslav Volf says is that all of us are perpetrators of violence and evil, and all of us are victims of violence and evil. And the power of the cross is that Jesus himself takes on and bears the burden of our perpetrating against the Father. Of the evils we have done, he bears it himself, and he also comes alongside of us as the victims of the world and says, I have experienced and lived your pain. So he is uniquely the only one who can bring forgiveness and restoration. And this is the authority that he gives to us who believe, is that when we repent, when we turn away from the darkness and confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Some of you still don't see your hard-heartedness. And I, I can't do anything about that, but I can remind you of ways that are the way that we think about the world keeps us from God. If you think that you know better than God, or if, if you think that you understand Jesus better than everybody else around you, if you spend your time criticizing others rather than considering your own sin, if you run away from people who disagree with you, we all do these things, we must repent of them because they will keep us away from God. If you think that the Bible and God aren't good enough for you, if you believe that you have the right to determine your own life rather than to submit to God, if we are so arrogant to believe that we are the arbiter of truth and that all scripture should be changed to fit my assumptions about how an ancient civilization 3,500 years ago understood God and experienced him, if we have no humility, if we are unrepentant in our sin, we will stand before God and our arrogance and our pride will keep us from joining his family. 
think, maybe think of it this way. If you were to bring, like let's say you show up at my front door and you have a 500 pound tuna with you. Okay, just imagine you've got it on a cart and you just came back from a fishing trip and you're like, I stopped here on the way home from the airport because I really wanted to talk. There'd be a few problems with that. The, the first would be, number one, a 500-pound bluefin tuna is not going to fit through my door. And so if you want to come into my house, you're actually going to have to leave that 500-pound tuna outside. The second is, you probably aren't willing to leave a tuna worth $100,000 to rot in the sun on my doorstep. And the third is, I don't want your stinking fish in my house. This is what it's like with our sin in God. Is that we come up to the door and we knock and we say, can I come in? He says, that's fine, but all the stuff you're holding on to, you've got to leave behind. It stinks. It's going to mess up my whole house. And it's going to keep you from experiencing the joy of being in my presence. But we look at the value, that $100,000 fish, and we say, it's too important to me. It's too valuable to me. And there are some of us in the last day who are, are going to be invited to usher, be ushered into God's kingdom, and we're going to say, I'd rather have my stuff. I'd rather have my pride. I'd rather determine my own way than submit myself to the God of the universe and allow him to determine the terms at which I come to him. This is the invitation of salvation, is to leave behind all of the ways that we're holding on to this world and receive forgiveness from God. If we hold on to the things of the world that we love, including our pride, if we tell God that they're more important to him, he is going to honor your wish to be excluded from his kingdom. He's not going to make you come and be a part of his family. And this is what hell is, is we go our own way that leads to death and destruction. I don't think I need to convince us of this. When we pursue the ways of the world and the ways of our flesh, the inevitable result is death, both physical and spiritual. But the invitation of Jesus through Paul and John is that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we confess that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so we must turn, turn our hearts and unlearn this ugly pride because this is the only thing that will keep you from God believing that you know better than God. And so I'm going to invite the band to come up, and we're going to take a moment. And we normally don't do this as a part of our worship, a time of preparation before we receive communion. Um, but this is, this is what the Bible tells us to do, is to never take communion without doing this work, this particular work, which is we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God to show us the places where our pride and our sin is holding us back from entering into his presence, where our pride we're holding on to ahead of everything. And when you come forward to receive communion, what you're saying is that I have made Jesus king and Lord over all things.
and I submit to him in all things. And when I get invited into his household, I'm gladly going to leave behind my sin and receive the inheritance of his presence with us. So let's pray together. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org slash connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.